Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 5, Episode 14, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name is Rick. Um, I'm author of The God Who Fights For You, which was released uh, last year. And I know uh, uh, I've had a number of people pick up the book just recently when we're in pandemic land here. And it has uh, really met them where they are living, which is in a place of uncertainty and anxiety and pain. Uh, that's why I wrote the book, The God Who Fights For You. It's about the last, some of the last words that Jesus spoke to Peter when he warned him that Satan was going to sift him, but that he would recover from that sifting and be strengthened by it. So the whole book is about that one little conversation that Jesus had with Peter and how that influences and infects our own life with him. So that's called The God Who Fights For You. Uh, you can find that on Amazon or anywhere you want. Um, and I just finished, still finishing, the very end of the Jesus Center Daily, the daily devotional that will come out in October. We're trying to get it ready to send over the ocean to, of all places, China to be printed. We'll talk more about that as the year goes on. So uh, again, welcome from Corona Land, from my home to yours. And today, for this ninth episode in this series we're calling Foundations, I have invited my wife, Bev, who you've heard me talk about often on the podcast. She's, as it turns out, we're, you know, quarantined here and at home together. And so far, both of us have survived and we have no visible wounds. Is that correct, Bev? Uh, so far. So far. Yeah, that, yeah. Was, very, that was very hopeful. <laughs> where, where I am sardonic, Bev is uh, religiously right on the button she she when she says so far we have no wounds she doesn't mean that in a funny way she's actually assessing whether she has been wounded yet or not is that correct also bev maybe yeah see there you go so today uh i invited bev uh to join me on this ninth uh episode today's is called the problem of pain now we're looking forward here to easter and also before that, of course, Good Friday. Good Friday is, you know, the, the most strangely titled holiday in our calendar because, of course, it is Good Friday, but it's also Bad Friday. It's the day that uh, Jesus was crucified. And talk about pain. Uh, there has no one who has ever experienced the kind of pain that Jesus experienced on that day. And pain is actually a, a major theme in his life and in his teaching and in the way that he relates to us today, because pain is an everyday reality for, for all of us, and even heightened by all of the pain that this uh, virus pandemic has caused us. Maybe you know someone who's actually been infected or even uh, is in the hospital or even has died from this virus so far, but everyone, 100% of us, our lives have been upended in some way or another, and there has been pain as a result of this. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you're afraid of losing your job. Maybe uh, your, your kids have had tremendous disappointments as school activities and sports and plays and things have been canceled. Pain is all around us, so there's no better time than this, this time during Holy Week, looking forward to Good Friday and then the resurrection of Easter to plunge into Jesus's relationship with pain. So. Uh, in our, in our home group uh, last week, we, uh, we also focused on this whole, um, sp uh, whole focus of Jesus and his relationship to pain and wh what is he doing in the midst of our pain. And I started off the whole evening, uh, we, we do this over Zoom. So we have about 30 young people on the screen on a Tuesday night and, we, and on Zoom, this platform now that everyone is using, and I, I've been using for a couple of years now, on Zoom, uh, you can choose your own sort of green screen background, you know, like they do on uh, your TV weather report, where you can uh, be right in front of a green screen and put something else behind the screen. You can do that on Zoom, but not every computer is able to do it. So I asked all the kids to choose a background to put 
on their behind their face on this Zoom meeting, and only four were able to do it. And so after we uh, finished that, I said to the four, okay, now all of you, every last one of you, you four people, you now suddenly have the coronavirus. You have COVID-19. And what's more, you have underlying health issues, that, and that means you're likely end up in the hospital on a ventilator. So those four of you, now you're sick, you're in the hospital, you're on a ventilator, and we know that uh, once people uh, are on a ventilator in the hospital, the odds are not good for them. So uh, after that reality set in, I asked the whole group, so how is that, the, just the random assignment of the coronavirus to four of them that just happened to be able to put a background on their screen. How is that like or unlike what's happening in our culture right now? And Bev, maybe you could weigh in here. Um, what, how do you think the, the random selection of people that we did that night is like what's happening around the virus in our culture today? And maybe it's not like it, but uh, how do you see that as the same or different from what's actually happening in our culture right now? Well, when I experienced it, it was just kind of shocking. I didn't know what you were gonna do with those people who could create a different screen, their background. I assumed it was gonna be the start of some kind of a game or some kind of exercise or something, but somehow telling them they had the coronavirus while we're sitting here in quarantine during a pandemic was just, I mean, I, I remember seeing the other kids' faces too. Everyone just kind of looked at on the screen, their eyes got bigger. And for me, it was like a reminder of how shocking and surprising this whole event has been, this whole quarantine. Literally a month ago, nobody was anticipating we'd be where we are today. It just came on so suddenly for everybody. And that's how it felt when you picked those four kids. Yeah, and it's sudden and it does. I mean, we, we talk about this a lot as a family. Um, we talked about it last night on our walk around the neighborhood with our with our dog that this virus we're, we're craving ways to understand how we can control the outcome of this so we're looking for patterns and is it basically older people who are really at risk or is it people who've traveled or had is it people that are not keeping their social distance and or, or is it people that are not wearing a mask right now if we could figure out the pattern then we would feel some level of control over the outcome of all this. And, uh, but, but when it's randomized, like we did on screen, that's you know, exponentially scarier. If it's just random and there's no pattern to it, it takes away any control we have. And we actually did a poll um, online. I just wanted to find out from the group uh, a very simple question. What scares you the most about pain? And I gave them four different uh, answers that they could respond to. They, uh, what scares you the most about pain? Is it the unknown? Is it that it threatens your hope? Is it that you doubt you can face the pain? Or is it the loss that results from the pain? And the answers were spread out across all four, but the one that got the most response was the unknown, which isn't surprising because the unknown is always the scariest thing for us. And underneath that foundation of the unknown is can we control this or not? Because if it's uncontrollable, that's where it gets really scary. So it made me, uh, th this, this whole conversation made me think about something my daughter Lucy raised last weekend. Um, she had been uh, noticing that a lot of people are posting references to Psalm 91 online and on social media as a perfect Psalm for a time like this to give you encouragement and hope. And so Lucy went and read Psalm 91 and then was left with some dissonance after she read it. The dissonance came from um, the promises that are listed in Psalm 91 versus the reality of what's happening around us. Let me just uh, set this up for you. Uh, Psalm 91 was written, well, most uh, scholars think was written by Moses um, right after he completed construction of the tabernacle of God in the wilderness. And then he entered into this tabernacle and then he wrote Psalm 91. So uh, Moses was full of sort of a euphoria over uh, being in the presence of God after this, uh, the tabernacle, of course, was this structure built 
to house the presence of God that followed Moses and the Israelites throughout the wilderness so that they would always have God's presence with them. And after they constructed the tabernacle, Moses goes in and, and, and just feels sort of overwhelmed with the closeness and the presence of God. So he writes Psalm 91, and David included it in his collection of Psalms. So that's the little on-ramp into when and how this was written. Let me just go ahead and read Psalm 91, and then we'll talk about the dissonance between the promises we see here and our reality. So here we go. Those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God, and I trust him. For he will rescue you from every trap and protect you from deadly disease. He will cover you with his feathers. He will shelter you with his wings. His faithful promises are your armor and protection. So don't be afraid of the terrors of the night, nor the arrow that flies in the day. Do not dread the disease that stalks in darkness, nor the disaster that strikes at midday. Though a thousand fall at your side, though 10,000 are dying around you, these evils will not touch you. Just open your eyes and see how the wicked are punished. If you make the Lord your refuge, if you make the Most High your shelter, no evil will conquer you. No plague will come near your home. For he will order his angels to protect you wherever you go. They will hold you up with their hands so that you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. By the way, that was the, that was the uh, challenge that Satan gave Jesus in the wilderness when he challenged him to throw himself off the high tower. He quoted this portion of Psalm 91 and said, hey, won't God do this for you? So, for he will order his angels to protect you wherever you go. They will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. You will trample upon lions and cobras. You will crush fierce lions and serpents under your feet. The Lord says, I will rescue those who love me. I will protect those who trust in my name. When they call on me, I will answer. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue and honor them. I will reward them with a long life and give them my salvation. So there's Psalm 91. And the question is, um, wow, powerful promises. He'll rescue us from every trap and protect us from deadly disease. Um, I'll protect those who trust in my name. I'll rescue those who love me. It's full of these hopeful, encouraging promises. And yet we watch the news. We listen to the stories of our friends. We know the reality is bad, hard things happen to people who love Jesus and follow him. It still happens to this day. So, so how do we make sense? Lucy's question is, how do we make sense? How, how do we treat this psalm? Is it something we can count on? Is it something we can find hope in? Or is it just false hope? So, so Bev, what do, you, what do you think are some of the possible explanations for the contradiction here, this promise of protection and our actual experience of life? What are some things that pop into your head that help, help to explain the contradiction there? Well, I think that there's an eternal view with God's word. Um, God doesn't change. He's consistent yesterday, today, and forever into the future. So I do believe ultimately these words are true about rescuing, about saving us, about protecting us, but um, it may not all apply perhaps to here and now, right now. I don't know. I'm not a theologian, so I don't want to be misspeaking about how to interpret this, this psalm. It also could be met metaphorical, too. Or it Wait a minute. Be. Wait a minute. I have to stop you there. I did not know this before. You actually are not a theologian. You have, you have, you have misled I, me all these years. Yeah. Well, I feel the need to say that since I am now on a podcast, you see, because oh. others will hear me. I have to uh, make sure that I'm not overseeing. Yeah. What she's really saying is if we were in our kitchen talking about this right now, she'd have no problem. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but it also can be, like I said, metaphorical or more about, a spiritual protection. For instance, if I came down with this with COVID-19, and if I did die, it doesn't mean that I wouldn't feel like God was with me, 
that he was, that he was surrounding me, that he was protecting me. Yeah, that, uh, and that's one way that we can sort of make sense of this, right, is that, that we take Moses' words metaphorically. Um, it still hangs, hangs in the air, though, that Moses seems to be taking these words literally, and are we supposed to as well, and how can we do that? Even Jesus himself in John 14, 15, and 16, when he's preparing his disciples for his departure, gives them a long laundry list of bad stuff that's about to happen to them. And it's, it's like a chapter length list of really terrible things, Be, betrayed by your family, dragged in front of courts, martyred. Of course, 11 of the 12 disciples were, were martyred and John died alone on the island of Patmos. So pain and heartbreak and physical pain in addition to other kinds of pain all happened to the people that followed him. So even there, we, we think, well, Jesus, did you read Psalm 91? <laughs> How is this supposed to work? And when we were first talking about this as a family a couple of weekends ago, the thing that popped into my head was something that I've thought about often. Um, that, that this is kind of a crazy out there thought, but I find it quite true. I just haven't explored the depths of it yet. But when you think about parents and how parents, you know, parent their children when they're little, all the way up to their teenagers. So we have a college age daughter now and a junior in high school, but we still remember what it was like to parent when they were little kids, when they were toddlers or babies. And your parenting style by necessity is very different from when they're little to when they're more adult-like. When they're little, your parenting boundaries and discipline is, is pretty black and white and simple. Hey, you, if you run out into the street like that, you're going to be disciplined. You can't do that. There's lots of do's and don'ts when kids are little. Very hard and fast boundaries, um, very black and white kinds of things that we, uh, that we offer to our children when they're little. But as they get older, there's less and less black and white. There's a less and less way of seeing the world even in black and white. There's a lot more gray, and we give over some volition and some responsibility to our kids as they get older. So the thought is, well, what if, what if in the whole history of God's people that he is, quote, unquote, parenting us over the space of these millennium um, differently than he did in the Old Testament, because his relationship with us has grown different. Um, by definition, it's different because we do not live under the old covenant anymore. We live under a new covenant because Jesus brought the new covenant with him. We are not tied to the law. Jesus himself is the fulfillment of the law. And we have the, the presence of God, not in a tabernacle, but in our own soul. So we carry the presence of Jesus with us. All of these things are radical differences between the way Old Testament people navigated their relationship with God and how we do today. So some of this, these promises in Psalm 91 that seem very sort of black and white, either or, clear cut, um, that I, I, have, I, I have this sense that there, there was a reason for how clear cut it was in the Old Testament, just as there's a reason for how clear cut it is when children are small. And that as we have progressed into the new covenant, there's less clear-cutness. We also have the presence of Jesus within us instead of outside of us. So the, uh, his very presence is also our rescue in our soul. Anything to say about that, Bev, before we move on here? Um, yes. Just one thing that I had thought about earlier today. We're also called to grow up in Christ. But to grow up in Christ means to be like a child. We are supposed to be like children in that we trust, we trust that our Father, we trust that whatever we're facing, whatever suffering, whatever fear and anxiety, He's there too, and we have to have a have a childlike faith. So while I can see what you're saying as far as um, that, perhaps the way He has been parenting has changed perhaps over the millennial or whatever over the hundreds of years also though he's calling us to a childlike faith 
Yeah, I really love that. And the, the, the word you use there is trust. And uh, in the end, Jesus is really after trust in this relationship because he wants intimacy and that's how intimacy is created. And uh, uh, that's an interesting way to think about that too, that, that in the Old Testament, trust was based on circumstantial, uh, circumstantial outcomes. So all through the Old Testament, if things go well for you circumstantially, then you're blessed by God. And if they don't, then you're not. And you see this carry over into the New Testament when people just assumed that if you had leprosy, you must have done something wrong. Or if you had any kind of uh, flaw or disease, it must be some, some rooted in some kind of sin because that's the way they were taught to think for so many hundreds of years that uh, circumstantial rescue was their focus. And yet then Jesus upends all that. He says, no, 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 it's not that the, the tower fell on those people um, in Salome and that those were the worst sinners in town. No, you got it all wrong. It's, it's not about that at all. So uh, it's hard for us to understand how radical this was when Jesus said this. He's trying to change their view of their relationship with God from a, a focus on circumstantial hope to the hope that's within us now the trust that comes when circumstances don't work out the way we want them to, and yet we love him deeply anyway. That's a kind of maturity in a relationship that, again, um, moves from the toddler stage to something more adult-like when you trust the heart of the person no matter what the circumstances look like. And in the, when, when we were talking about this uh, uh, last week, I showed a little... I guess you could call it a nature video. It's, a, it's something I've had on my computer for a long time, just waiting to see when I might be able to use it. And it's, it's, a, it, it's not narrated. It's just a, about a three-minute scene of a mother, um, a, a mother bear and a baby bear climbing across uh, a, snow, uh, a snow cornice somewhere in the mountains. So they're, they're on the kind of the top of this little snow-covered ridge, and they're trying to walk along the ridge to get to a field on the other side. And along the way, this little baby bear slips off the side of the cornice and slides down this steep slope. And so the mother um, stays up on top of the ridge uh, looking at her little baby bear as the baby bear tries to climb back up this ridge and uh, tries two or three times to climb up and just gets so close to her mother. In fact, so close at one point that the mother, mother bear tries to reach out and grab the baby bear with one of her paws. But the baby bear slides all the way back down, like 100 feet back down this uh, icy side of a mountain. Finally, you watch as you're watching this, the baby bear figures out a way to kind of go zigzaggy sideways and finally makes it up to the top. And I asked everybody to watch what the mother bear was doing during this scene and watch what the baby bear was doing at the same time and make some observations about pain and overcoming pain. So Bev, um, I literally had, I think I remember when we, when we showed this, I had to ask you to mute your microphone because you were gasping right at this screaming. scene. <laughs> yes, it was, oh, gut-wrenching for me and for some of the other kids too, to just see this this little baby bear all splayed out, sliding down the mountain. You just, your heart goes out to that baby, and it was just gut-wrenching. Well, the question was, what did you notice about the mama bear's response during that? And what, what did you see the mama bear doing during that scene? You know, the mama bear was calm, relaxed, steady, um, didn't seem panicked, didn't try to go down and rescue the baby. Um, just was patient and waiting. But at the same time, you could sense a little bit of um, concern because the mama bear kind of was pacing back and forth, but not in an alarming way, just in a concerned way. Yeah, and you, you could, I, I love that description you gave her, relaxed, calm, um, confident in, in a sense, but she was very focused on her baby bear. I mean, her eyes never left the baby. That she, uh, some of the, I remember some of the kids when I was asking them about this, they thought the mama bear should have just dived down the slide to the slope and rescued the baby bear. And others said, well, if she did that, she'd be in trouble too. She couldn't do that. And it's not even right to do that. The baby bear needs to learn how to climb back up that slope itself. But the mama bear never left it and kind of 
stayed there as sort of the carrot to the to the rabbit you know come on back up here i'm gonna wait for you so uh, what did you notice about the baby bear during that scene bev what did you well, see uh, when it was falling it was just this chubby little thing <laughs> out. it was just adorable but the baby bear just kept trying to get back to its mom i mean just stayed focused didn't just kept trying as soon as she would get or he would get to the bottom it started climbing again right he he saw his mama up there and he was not going to give up easily yeah he was going to keep climbing no matter what because he saw his mama waiting for him there he knew that he wasn't alone that's that's i think another big thing out of this that he knew he hadn't been abandoned and alone even though he had this big challenge to overcome and uh, i showed that that video as a sort of an on-ramp, a lead into talking about Jesus and the, and the death of Lazarus, this iconic story in the gospel. It's one of the most detailed stories we have of Jesus encountering someone who is in pain. Um, and it, there's multiple people in pain in this story. And what I wanted to do was explore the story of Lazarus using this scene of the mama bear and the baby bear as sort of a filter to understand some of what is going on in the relationship between Jesus and us when we face challenges, pain, or anxiety. So I thought it'd be interesting for us to just dive into that story again. Again, it's a long story. It's in John chapter 11. Um, it's in John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. Um, we've uh, focused on this story in the podcast before. So I'm just going to skim it, um, skim over it now and hop in whenever whenever we want to, to talk about some, some questions about how Jesus engages people in pain. So in John chapter 11, um, we learn about this. Oh, and, and Bev, is, uh, Bev is leaving the building now, just to warn you. You would not hear her voice again. But I hope to come back sometime. <laughs> she will come back sometime. We'll invite her again. Um, she has quarantine duty. So the raising of Lazarus. Uh, so, of course, Lazarus is one of Jesus' best friends. He's the brother of Mary and Martha. Um, he is sick. He fi Jesus finds out he's sick, and he delays going to uh, heal him for three days to make sure Lazarus is dead by the time he gets there. He's pretty clear to his disciples that he is waiting so that Lazarus for sure will be dead. And not just a little bit dead, a lot dead, like three days dead. Which is the uh, which is the uh, sort of the standard for pronouncing someone truly dead is yes they've been in the grave for three days they are truly dead so by the time Jesus gets there um, Lazarus has been in the tomb for three days and here's what he tells um, here's what he tells the people when he gets there. Uh, 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 and Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I'll go and wake him up. Oh, this is what he's saying to his disciples. And his disciples say, well, Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll soon get better. And they thought that Jesus was speaking literally, but Jesus was actually speaking metaphorically. So he tells them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now you will really believe. So come, let's go see him. So the disciples say, let's go with him. And he arrives in Bethany. Martha and Mary are just broken beside, them, beside themselves with grief. Um, and Mary doesn't even come out to greet um, Jesus when he arrives because she's so broken and upset. And she's uh, frankly angry with Jesus that he hasn't arrived sooner, knowing that if he had arrived sooner, maybe her brother would be alive now. But Martha does go out to meet him and says to him, Lord, if only you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. So this heartbroken woman in the midst of her grief says to Jesus, even now, I, I believe in you. Whatever you, do, whatever you do or say now, I know that you have the capability of bringing my, my brother back to life. And Jesus tells her, well, your brother will, will rise again. And Martha says, yeah, yeah, I know Jesus. He'll rise when everyone else rises on the last day. And Jesus goes, no, no, you don't understand. I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. And everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? And Martha says to him, yes, Lord, I've always believed you're the Messiah, the Son of God, 
the one who has come into the world from God. And that's when Martha goes back to, and convinces Mary to come out and talk to Jesus. And when Mary comes out, the people are weeping. Mary is weeping. Mary repeats what her sister's already said. Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus sees her weeping, looks around at the crowd, and, it, and it, Scripture says a deep anger wells up within him. He's weeping and angry, and he asks, where have you put him? And uh, they show him the, the grave, and Jesus asks for the stone to be rolled aside, and they're, they're shocked by this because the smell will be terrible, and, and they, they're incredulous. They don't understand what he's doing, and Jesus has to remind them, don't, don't you understand what I've said already? that you would see God's glory if you believe. And this is really his point here, that he wants the disciples and the crowd to see God's glory. They, he wants them to experience his power over death. And Jesus then looks up to heaven and says, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. And then he shouts, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man comes out, his hands and feet are bound in grave cloths, his face is wrapped in a headcloth, and Jesus tells them, unwrap him and let him go. So there's this, you know, epic story. So many twists and turns in this story. And the question is, um, when we think about this story, what do we notice about Jesus's attitude towards pain? Let's, let's uh, tackle that one first. Um, what jumps out to me here is that Jesus both uh, feels every ounce of pain. We know this because he's not only weeping, he's angry. He's emotionally engaged in the pain that he sees in the people around him. One thing we know for sure, Jesus cares. Without a doubt, he has invested himself in our emotional life, in our story, and what pains us, pains him. He cares. And yet, though he cares as deeply as he does, he is willing to allow pain to come into our lives. In the case of Lazarus, we hardly ever think about what he must have been thinking right before he passed away. But he also knew that his friend Jesus could save him from this and wasn't showing up. What must he have felt as he was breathing his last? And then in, in, after that happened, what must his sisters have felt when they're waiting not one, but two, but three days for Jesus to finally show up? Oh, the, the hours just dragging by, the frustration and pain mounting. And yet Jesus allows this to happen, knowing the pain they're going to experience because he has a bigger story he's telling. He wants them to experience the power and the, uh, uh, the amazing ability of God, the glory of God. And where does that power emanate from? What fuels it? It's his love. It's his love that, he, that is driving him to make his friend Lazarus like an object lesson. And the, and the lesson is life beats death. The power of life is stronger than the power of death. And it is a lesson he, he knows that people must learn if they're going to follow him. Because pain in every form is, as we've said already in this episode, is a regular part of our life. And Jesus needs us to know that there is a power bigger than our pain. As much as our pain feels like it is clouding our universe, that it overshadows everything else in our life, he wants us to know that there's something beautiful that overshadows all of that. It's his glory. It's his power. He wants us to know death is an, a vanquished enemy, that he has no trouble confronting death and overcoming it. So Jesus' attitude toward pain is difficult, I would say, in this story. He, he, um, he is broken by pain, but he is also very willing to allow pain to enter into our life. Um, it's, and the question then, if you go back to the, my description of that mama bear, baby bear video, uh, how, how then is Jesus like that mama bear in the video? 
I think there's some good comparisons. She's present to her baby bear within sight. She's essentially saying to her baby bear, I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. But I'm also not coming down that slope to grab you in my mouth and drag you up here. I need you to come to me. And really the magnetic attraction in that video is the mama bear beckoning her baby bear repeatedly, come to me. Even when you have slid back down the slope, when you feel like you're almost there and you slide again, that feeling of just defeat that comes when that happens in real life, the mama bear doesn't give up, keeps staring at her baby bear and says, just get up again and come to me. You'll make it. You will be with me soon. And then the, 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 the memory of that horrible challenge that you had to face and the fear that you had when you were sliding down the side of the hill, you will never forget it, but it won't hold sway over you anymore. You will have experienced a power greater than that. So the, the mama bear is present, uh, focused, as Bev said, relaxed, confident, full of strength, not worried. She, uh, in fact, this is the, the great gift Jesus gives us in the midst of our trials and our pain. He's not worried about us. He's, he, he knows um, that, that we're going to make it. He knows that we will find our way to him. And when we do, we will find the peace and grace of his presence helping us overcome whatever it is we need to overcome. And if you think about this story again, how are Mar Mary and Martha like that baby bear in that, in that video I described, how are they like the baby bear? Well, I, I think there's some good comparisons there too. You know, they, they, they're best friends with Jesus, all three of them. If Jesus was going to come help anyone, wouldn't he come to help his best friends? And once he knew that Lazarus was in trouble, wouldn't Jesus drop everything to come to them? Um, uh, and then Jesus doesn't come. And they are waiting as Lazarus takes his last breath, thinking that at any moment, Jesus is going to show up. Jesus does, by the way, here's a rabbit trail for you, seem to like to come at the very last minute when things seem like they couldn't get any worse for us. That's when he seems to show up. And here it's true with Mary and Martha and Lazarus as well, except in this case, he doesn't show up. He, the, the, that um, idea that he'll come riding over the hill to save the day doesn't work out for them. And then they, as I said before, have to live for three days wallowing in that sense of disappointment and frustration and even anger. I believe that Mary doesn't come out to greet Jesus because she can't at the start. She's so full of anger and grief over what's happened and the lack of his presence when they most needed him. And uh, so the, the frustrations, the pain, the uncertainty, the unknown, all of this, I think, is like the feeling of a baby bear sliding down the side of a mountain, not knowing if they'll ever be able to get to the top again, not knowing if they'll be, ever be able to reunite with their, with their mama bear again. But as soon as they reach the bottom, climbing up, and I see in Martha some of the baby bear climbing up the hill when she says, you know, Jesus, I don't understand why you didn't come. My brother's dead now, and he wouldn't be if you had come. But even now, I know that God would give you whatever you ask. That is Martha picking herself up after she slid down the slope and climbing toward Jesus again. She is not going to give up on him. He tells her, uh, he asks her bluntly, um, do you believe that I am the Messiah, Martha? Do you believe that I am the resurrection? Do you believe that anyone who believes in me will live? And she's, she's blunt back in her response. Yes, I've always believed you, the Messiah, the son of God, the one who's come into the world from God. And then she acts on it by, by uh, running back to Mary and saying, Mary, don't give up hope yet. Come, uh, come to Jesus. Don't give up on him yet. You don't know yet what he might do. So she convinces her broken sister to come and meet Jesus. That's that baby bear climbing back up. And Mary, I just love Mary. She's so full of heart.
She's broken because she's full hearted. She always has been. And she's honest about her feelings about Jesus when she meets him. Jesus respects and honors that kind of honesty. When pain and anxiety and fear have invaded our world, as they have for sure all over the world, he honors and respects and actually invites our real raw responses to that, just as Mary gives to him. Um, that this is why, by the way, he is so close to Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They're real with him. They don't hide their real relationship under religious jargon. They just speak in a real way to him, and they believe in a real way. So what do we learn about uh, Jesus' heart by simply paying attention to how he responds to pain in this story? What do we learn about his heart? What can we know to trust. As Bev was saying before, this, this trusting relationship with Jesus is really an issue of whether we are coming to taste and see that his heart is good when the circumstances don't seem to show that. So right now we're in circumstances that typically throughout our history, you even see it today where people start to say things like, well, this is God's judgment on our culture. It's uh, his judgment on the world now. He's lowering the boom. Well, Jesus specifically went out of his way to try to tell people over and over again, this is not why bad things happen. Stop thinking that way. I, knew you, I know you used to think that way, but that isn't the truth. This is not why this is happening. And here in this story of his encounter with Mary and Martha and then raising his, his friend Lazarus from the dead, he's, he's trying to speak into their world and say, you can trust me even when I have so deeply frustrated you. You can still trust my heart. When Jesus says, anyone who believes in me will live even after dying, he's trying to say, trust in me across the chasm of your doubt, across the chasm of your disappointment and pain. Trust what you know of me. And then Martha speaks out what she knows of him. I've always believed you're the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who's come into the world from God. She speaks out what she knows of his heart. And when she is broken and in despair and has no circumstantial hope left anymore, what she speaks out is her trust in Jesus' heart. And his heart is ferocious on our behalf. I think the reason why it says twice in this story that when Jesus saw the grief all around him and saw what was happening and recognized um, how much pain people were in because of Lazarus's death, that he was angry. It says twice he was, he was still angry when he got to the grave. And he's still angry, I think, because as we've talked about on the podcast before, he's angry because life is in opposition to death. When, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, death, where's your sting? He's quoting the Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah death. Where's your sting? Um, life has been victorious over death. D death no longer can kill us. <laughs> that sounds so funny, but death isn't our death anymore. That's essentially what Paul is saying. And Jesus came to defeat the enemy of death. Death is, a, is, a, is an aberration in the created world of God. God created the world and us to be in an eternal, loving relationship. Death is an intruder. Death is an enemy. And Jesus says, I came to defeat this enemy, and I'm going to. I, I am uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's wrestling over the going to the cross or not. We, uh, his wrestling match ends with him saying, I'm going to complete the job I came here to do. And the job I came here to do is to defeat death in every form. So when Jesus is in the presence of death, it makes perfect sense to me that he would be angry, that, that life is always angry at the uh, intruder that has come in to destroy, and death certainly does destroy. We see it all around us in our culture today. So we know that the ferocious heart of Jesus is angry because life will always be angry at death, but the tender heart of Jesus understands what pain has done to us, the destructive impact of it. And he wants to reassure us that his heart is good and that his presence, he, he will not remove his presence from our life. 
And that in a way that is hard for us to explain, he invades our pain with his presence, allowing us to carry through like we're on a whitewater raft trip to get through the scariest part of those rapids. He's in the raft with us. Now, that doesn't take away the fear that we have or the anxiety that we have, but we do look to the raft and see our Jesus, the experienced guide, um, helping us make it through the scariest rapids of our life. He's present with us. And somehow, I'm, it's, hard, it's too hard to explain, but those who have lived through pain but felt the closeness and tenderness and love of Jesus in the midst of it, you know what I'm talking about. You, you can be in pain with all that that means, but have a sense of the closeness of his presence carrying you through. And this is what Jesus promises us, just like that mama bear on the top of that ridge. I won't leave you. I won't forsake you. My eyes are on you. I'm studying you. I'm pacing back and forth until you find your way back to me. And when you find your way back to me, the end of that little scene is the mama bear and the, and the little baby bear romping into this wide expanse of a field. It's almost like as soon as the baby bear makes it to the top of the ridge, they go into play mode. <laughs> They're just exuberant with delight and they run off into the field. I love that picture, that, that this could be the picture that Jesus gives us as well of what he's doing right now in our pain. He wants to carry us through until that point at which the pain is not forgotten, but it is in our rearview mirror. And we can run into the field with a, in a spirit of play and delight with him because he was with us. The, the one thing that we know is sure, just to reiterate this at the close here, is that Jesus cares about our pain. He, is, he, he does not take it lightly. He understands its impact. And he does not want to waste the power of pain in our life. He will use it and redirect it to bring beauty where, uh, out of ugly, to bring light where there was darkness, to bring freedom where there was captivity. He will not waste the cost of our pain. He will spend it wisely. You know, he told the parable of the, of the, uh, of the uh, talents to, to reiterate how much at, at, uh, in his personality he wants us to take what's been given and risk it to make more because that reflects his own heart. He's not going to waste our investment of pain without trying to, to multiply it into a bounty of beauty in our life. And that's what we can hope for in the midst of things, even though that does not change our, our present reality. In our present reality, we see the tears streaming down Jesus' face and his anger over the pain that we're experiencing. And we know that he is for us and will continue to be for us until we're reunited um, and able to enjoy his presence, not under the shadow of fear any longer. Well, as we close off here, um, I just want to give you an opportunity to uh, express whatever pain that you might be feeling right now. If you're able, if you're not driving, if you're just at home listening to this, um, there, there's uh, some skin between your forefinger and your thumb on both sides of your hand, on, on each hand, I mean. I want you to just take the forefinger and thumb of one hand and pinch the skin between the forefinger and the thumb on the other hand. Just pinch it. It's a very tender place there. I just want you to pinch it to, so you feel a little bit of pain as we close here in, in uh, prayer. So go ahead and do that right now. Just pinch that skin until you feel a little bit of that pain. And uh, the way we're gonna close here is um, to come to Jesus as little children, as he invited us so often. Um, I wanna invite you in just a moment. I'm gonna start by the, the prayer time by continuing to hold, uh, pinch that, that uh, tender place between my finger and thumb and I'm going to start the prayer by saying, Daddy, it hurts when, and then I'm going to finish the sentence. And then I will say that again and pause so you can fill in the space. Just offer up to Jesus whatever it is that hurts right now. So let's do that. Make sure you're still pinching that, that, that skin so you feel the pain. And here we go. Daddy, Daddy, it, it hurts. 
when I think about all of the the things that my daughters Emma and Lucy have lost now because of this pandemic that Emma has lost out on her junior prom and um, the leadership responsibilities she'd been chosen for she now can't do and lost out on our mission trip this summer and Lucy's lost out on her uh, semester at Spain this summer when she's studying Spanish all of these things gone I just feel pain and an ache when I think of these things. Daddy, it hurts when I think of these things. And now for you. Daddy, it hurts when. All right. Thank you for that. And like the widow who dropped her pennies in the pot, in the, in the offering pot, we've what we've done here is just give jesus the little bit that we have and the little bit we have is the pain that we experience we have offered it up to him and what we know for sure is that he's noticed he noticed that offering and was impressed and delighted and, and had so much respect for the courage it took to offer thank you jesus um we, we need your presence in the midst of our uncertainty and the unknown and the pain that we experience. We need to know that your eyes are locked on us during that time, that you won't leave us or forsake us, that you'll carry us through the white water rapids. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks, gang, for listening. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, Season 5, Episode 14. You can uh, find us at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. You can see links to everything we've talked about today on that page. And uh, make sure that you subscribe to this podcast if you want to make sure you don't miss any. You can subscribe on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll talk again next time.